Welcome to the Rock Podcast. With Elisha's first two miracles comes a wonderful illustration of the two sides of God's nature. There's also helpful insight here with one of the more challenging incidents in the Old Testament. So let's join Pastor Ross now as he brings a message entitled, The Kindness and Severity of God. All righty, good evening. Let's get started, but first thing... How do you follow that act? (laughs) Now, if you're just listening by podcast, you have no idea what that comment meant because you didn't see it, and it's impossible to explain. So (laughs) just know this. We had some entertainment in the form of announcements this evening. Amen? All right. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 2. We left off a couple paragraphs dangling there. We've got to go back and get them because they're very uh, interesting. So while you're doing that, we'll ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, just two quick illustrations of Elisha's ministry, miraculous ministry tonight. And they, they, they speak a lot of truth. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would help Apply that truth to our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, hostile atheists love to find anything they can to use in their foolish and relentless argument against the existence of God. And often it has to do with the evil and the injustices in this world and You know, the apparent uh, disparity between the the terrible estate of human condition and the assertion that there's a benevolent God uh, somewhere in the midst who's in charge. And so they say, you know, bad things happen, so there can't be a good God, that kind of thing. Or uh, if they do know the Bible well enough, they'll go to a passage that's kind of problematic even for Christians to try to understand. So they'll take a section of scripture that seems to point uh, or paint, I should say, God in a bad light to find where God is acting contrary to the kind and gracious being we know him to be. Now tonight, we're going to eventually uh, get to one of their favorite passages, uh, and uh, upon first reading of it, as you'll see tonight, it's a little bit jarring and disturbing, especially if you have the King James Version, and uh, even for those who, of us who love the Lord, it's a little bit of a challenge, but as usual, you will find that as you do just a little bit of digging, Not only does it clear up any confusion that you might have, but you actually become more encouraged in your faith as a result. And so here's the context, all right? The context. Uh, Elijah has been the spiritual leader of Israel, sort of pastoring Israel. There's no 
king who's doing it. And so Elijah is the prophet or has been for the past 14 years. Uh, He has not much to work with. Israel is filled with idol worshipers and most of the nation has gone after uh, the golden calves at two temples, one at Dan in the north and one at Bethel that we'll be hearing about even tonight. And they are worshiping the golden calves instead of uh, the God of the universe. And so uh, the Lord would use Elijah to speak corrective words and warnings and talk about the judgment of God coming and just in a fiery display of awesome power. Uh, But after 14 years, those days have now come to an end. And it seems really like they were prematurely terminated. Uh, It looks like there was a problem with his attitude that caused that. Now, the last 10 years of those 14 years uh, has been used to train up Elisha, who is going to replace him. And he will minister for 50 years. So he's a young man. Now, Elisha, and we, we've seen him come uh, to the foreground now as of last study. So when we last left off, Elijah had been taken by the Spirit of the Lord, a miraculous whirlwind. It's just a wonderful passage uh, that really speaks about the rapture of the church at the second coming. Also, uh, Elisha and the company of the prophets uh, we're watching on. And then we came to the place, well, now what? So Elisha picked up Elijah's mantle, put it on, and he's up for the job. He's going to be the next prophet to the nation of Israel. And so we saw that God granted Elisha miraculous powers as well, because the first thing he had to do is those 50 prophets were standing across the way again from uh, the eastern side of the Jordan. And he took his cloak Elijah fashion and struck the Jordan and it parted. And now these guys knew, okay. And they said, look, the spirit of Elijah is resting upon Elisha, meaning this is God's choice of a replacement for us because they were following this leader, Elijah. Now they're going to follow Elisha. So the, uh, the young prophets are having a little bit of a hard time. Uh, last we saw uh, they, they have a, a tough time letting go because they want to go look around for three days. Maybe, maybe we don't really have to make the transition. Maybe Elijah's really on some hilltop or in a valley stranded somewhere. Let's go look. And, and poor Elijah's like, what am I going to do? Tell you no? So he, he got embarrassed and he said, go look. You're not going to find him. And they come back after three days and they say, oh, he's nowhere. He, he got caught up to heaven, and he said, I told you so. So the Lord will now begin to work through Elisha, and uh, soon these guys are not going to have any doubt whatsoever that Elisha is the man, all right? So uh, two initial miraculous events now are recorded in just a few verses hanging there at the end of chapter 2, and we're going to take a look at that. Two important events uh, to consider tonight. Verse 19. We'll read both of them, and then we'll take one at a time. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, this Jericho, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad, and the land is unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, Elisha speaking, and put salt in it. 
They, so they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained wholesome to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. Verse 23 and miracle number 2. From there Elisha went up to Bethel, As he was walking along the road, some youths came out of the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head, they said. (laughs) Go on up, you bald head. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there and returned to Samaria. All right, let's pause there. (laughs) Let's talk. Two miracles, one of sweetness, one of severity, all right? A really nice picture of what God uh, has come to do and who God is. Back-to-back miracles, a lot going on here. Two very telling events to reflect on, sweet and severe. Let's look at sweet first, verses 19 through 22. Now, a first work often sets the tone of a new administration. Uh, Elisha's ministry will be one of helping those in need. Now, but he's not going to be a pushover either, and it won't be a namby-pamby kind of weak ministry, as we will see shortly. But if you compare Elijah, who came first, with Elisha, you will find that uh, Elijah really uh, ministered with the famous people. He was appointed to talk to kings and rulers and dignitaries, while Elisha is, this guy is more for the common man. And so there are some physical differences too, because Elijah is hairy and uh, Elisha, not so much. <laughs> now, uh, uh, Elijah is confrontive. Uh, with miracles, and he's a judgmental. I have a slide that just kind of has them uh, separated here just to keep you uh, on track here. Elijah's more of the judgmental guy who's against uh, warning about the wrath of God that comes as judgment. Elisha is more in the modest and deeds of compassion is going to be his emphasis. So, Uh, For example, Elisha, the things that are coming up besides these healing waters here, uh, the widow's oil is going to be increased, which is going to save her children from being thrown into debtor's prison. Uh, He's going to be able to cleanse a pot of poisonous stew just for the prophets there who uh, would be um, sick unto death if they ate that meal. Uh, He's going to feed 100 men uh, who are hungry and by multiplying some barley loaves. A Gentile leper is going to get healed, uh, and a guy who drops an axe head. These are just some of the miracles. He's going to find that axe head in a most miraculous way. But it, it's, a, it's a miracle of mercy for that guy. 
uh, because it would bring financial ruin to him if he didn't find it. And it's just like, oh, it's just an axe head. But th- this is the kind of ministry that Elisha is called to. And I really think the first miracle sets the tone. This is what this uh, guy has come to do. But more than that, this is what is on the heart of the Lord for the nation of Israel. He's come to make the bitter things sweet and to bring life from the dead. And so, which is better, Elijah's ministry or Elisha's? Well, you know, there's no such thing as comparing them that way, right? They're both both valid ministries. But even so, Elijah's name is mentioned 29 times in the New Testament. Fiery judgment guy. Elisha, the more modest kind of benevolent ministry is mentioned one time in the New Testament. And I think I know why. Because I think the Gospels really show you the ministry and the heart of God as the Elisha who who came to help and be kind and gracious. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and meek and humble and hard. And and the Gospels really explains uh, the Elisha side, the heart of God, the sweet heart of God. But then when you get to the New Testament, we're being told about, really, the gospel with the emphasis of the second coming, not the first. So the second coming is all about this fiery blaze of judgment. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, he shall appear in blazing fire of judgment to punish those who do not obey the gospel of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. Now that's an Elijah kind of thing, you see. And so I think we, we really have the nice picture. With these two miracles, you're going to have a very nice picture of the two aspects of God, which Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, really articul- uh, in a very nicely articulates in Romans 11.22. I have that for you. Notice then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. There, there's two aspects to God's nature, and you see it all through the scriptures of this kindness and yet severity. And so I like this poster that I saw uh, showing the lion and the lamb. Now, the lion and the lamb, I mean, the, the, the Lord is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And uh, he's got a ferocious wrath. And when he comes, the, the earth by the end of the 21 judgments found in Revelation chapter 6 through 18, 19, um, the earth is just one big globe of charred remains. There's nothing left. It's inhabitable. The lion. But then we have the lamb who laid down his life for the sins of the world, the grace of God. But you have these two sides to the Lord. And so uh, let's dive in the the kindness, right? That's what we're talking about. Jericho is not very far from the place where the Jordan was just divided. 
Now, the elders of the city of Jericho have heard about this miraculous translation of Elijah, no doubt. I mean, you can't keep that quiet. And the, uh, that local miracle at the Jordan, having the Jordan part, right? And so uh, they could use a miracle there in Jericho. And so here comes Elisha and the town elders go to him and they say, hey, this is a really well-situated city. I mean, it's pleasant. In the Hebrew, it means pleasant. It's pleasant. In other words, we can see the mountain ranges. And I remember standing there looking at the mountain ranges of Moab in the distance toward the east from from the side of Jericho facing the Jordan. Just a beautiful place. And the scriptures describe it as lined with shaded uh, palm trees and figs and sycamores. And, And so even before the Lord will bring healing to the land, it was still a very nicely situated place. And it was just a nice place to be, except one problem. The waters were bad. And the word for bad there is foul or evil or bitter. In other words, it was kind of a brackish spring that kind of poisoned things and made, made uh, agriculture really impossible and life very difficult. And so they went to Elisha and they said, can you help us? God has worked a miracle uh, through you. So he says, get a new bowl. Why a new bowl? Because it's going to be a new work. It's going to be a new work, a new thing, a new day for the people of God at Jericho. And so, really, things have been foul there and bitter ever from day one. Now, this is where Israel came up out of wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, came up toward the east of the Dead Sea and of the Jordan, and they entered the Promised Land at Jericho, where the waters parted. And when they parted in, the first town that they met was Jericho. And what happened there? That was one of the more wicked places in all of the promised land. The Canaanites that lived there, uh, terrible. And the Lord said, you know, the walls are going to come down. You're going to go in and, and just annihilate the place. I've been working 400 years with them. You know, Rahab and her family, they're going to be spared. But everything else is, is just to be charred remains. And so that's when it started. Joshua chapter 6. And the, the Lord really spoke a curse through Joshua upon Jericho that it would be this bitter place that uh, uninhabitable. It's not very a place where you could live. And so for 600 years then, this place has been bitter. The waters have made life miserable there for anybody trying to live there. Six centuries But this is God's heart, a new work of mercy. Now listen, pay attention, see if you can apply this. A place that's been formerly cursed, bitter, unproductive, where he's going to bring life and the the reversal of the curse. That's a significant theme in the scriptures. And so in this new bowl for a new work, for a new day of new mercy poured out on the bitterness there in Jericho, He's going to put salt. Now, salt, the, the Jews knew the symbol uh, was of purification. Salt combined with their sacrifices all the time. And in fact, by the Old Testament law, everything was to be purified with salt. Uh, in fact, did you know that the Lord called the covenant 
the Old Testament covenant between him and the Jews, he called it, nicknamed it, the covenant of salt. Just meaning friendship and loyalty with me will bring purification of your sins. It'll, it'll take the bitterness. It'll take away the barrenness, the emptiness. And, and in place of that will we'll grow, uh, will we'll be sweet life and springs of life. And uh, the Israelites know all about that. And they know that it's not the salt, but the savior of Israel that would make anything bitter to be sweet. In Exodus 15, that famous uh, incident in the wilderness, they came upon springs that were poisoned, brackish, undrinkable, they're going to die. And the Lord says to Moses, in a beautiful foreshadowing of the cross of Jesus Christ, Take the tree, throw the tree in the water, and the water will become sweet. And so at Mara, which means bitterness, they take the wood, the tree. It's called the tree. It's the same word that is nicknamed for the cross. In Acts uh, chapter 10 and verse 29, Peter is preaching and he says, the Jews killed him by hanging him on the tree. It's the same Word as what was thrown into the bitter waters to make them sweet and to bring life to whoever really believes. And so I love in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, the Lord says, you, my followers, are, and now it makes sense to me, you're the salt of the earth. And so we who have the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we who have the gospel that purifies us from all unrighteousness, Right? He sprinkles us into this world. And, and we bring a purification through preaching and living and praying the gospel. We're throwing the wood into the bitter waters because we carry the wood in our own hearts. And if you don't carry the wood in your own heart, the work of Christ in your heart, then you don't belong to him at all. Um, so... Uh, we, we say, I love 2 Corinthians chapter 2 um, that says, now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like sweet perfume. And we just go out into the world and we say there's a cure. There's a cure for bitterness and death and not being productive and not being the person that God wants you to be. And that's found through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the salt's added in verse 21. I love this declaration. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. Now, the word in Hebrew for unproductive is to be infertile or to miscarry. So this verse really ministered to me. You know, I spent 20 years being unproductive in bitterness and being lost. And I did a lot of damage. 20 wasted years of my life. They just didn't count. They will not count because I was dead in my sins. And, and when I read this again, once again, the thing that all, I always love to read, I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. You know, God's purposes were aborted in my life. And never again, now the springs of living water flow out of my innermost being. And 
by God's grace, my prayer is, God, that you do more good in me and through me than the wasted years, 20 wasted years, when a lot of bad things happened. Uh, I mean, I didn't get very far. I was only 19, uh, going on 20 when the Lord stopped me dead in my tracks. Uh, But surprisingly, I was able to do a lot of damage up until uh, I was 19 and a half. And so I just love the permanence of it. And he says that to everybody who's been purified in their hearts through the work of Jesus Christ. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. I just love the permanence. And John chapter 7, verse 38, now springs of living water flowing out of our inmost being. You know, uh, we baptized a guy named Ryan, a young man who just kept saying, bouncing around saying, I feel so light. I feel like a weight has left me. I just feel like giddy and tingling all over. And I, and I said, you know what? I got saved at your age. And I'm still feeling that lightness and that joy of knowing that never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. I have healed these waters, you know. And let that minister to you. What God has healed, you know what? There's no reason it has to become bitter again. And when you start to taste a little bit of that bitterness coming back, because the sin nature did survive conversion, right? We're supposed to render it dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, but it's in there, alive and well. And when you taste a little bit of that brackishness, that poisonous bitterness, you're able to call on the Lord to throw in the wood. Throw in the wood, throw in the cross, go to the cross. And you will find that bitterness become sweet and the place of death become life. Just an awesome thing. So, okay, the kindness of God. Just a beautiful picture of what God is really all about, right? And now the severity of God as Romans eleven twenty two described him of both natures there. Now, how about those who like the bitter waters just fine? Well, let's talk about them, all right? And to the passage that atheists love. Verse 23, the second incident now. From there, Elisha goes up to Bethel, and let's just start here for some context. It's a dangerous place for a guy like Elisha, a man of God. It's a dangerous place. Why? What, what happened at Bethel? Well, you know, the king got, King um, Jeroboam got a little insecure when he broke off from Judah. And he said, you know what? We can't have the Jews wanting to go back down to Jerusalem to worship because they'll like it there. And, and they'll probably stay and they'll revolt against me. So listen, we'll, we'll build a pseudo temple in Bethel and Dan. And we'll make shortcuts so they don't have to go all the way down there. And we'll put two golden calves up. You know how much the Jews love golden calves. And so we're going to put those up there, you know, and we're going to have them come to Bethel and worship there instead with false prophets. So the first of all is he's going to Bethel, man of God, on a mission from God with miraculous powers to call the people at Bethel out of false idolatry and to return to the Lord. It's a dangerous place. There's going to be a confrontation. And unless you feel that, 
you're not gonna, it's not going to make as much sense to you. Now, um, I like what one writer said. He said, this is no random visit. The waters were killing people in Jericho, but nothing like what was coming out of Bethel, spiritually speaking. And so the man of God is, is on a mission. He's going to call back Israel, no doubt, once he gets to Grand Central Station there of false uh, prophets. Now, uh, word spread, they find out, they know this young man uh, is coming up, younger man is coming up with the power of the Lord. So these guys, these youth, get ready at Bethel to confront him. Now, the spirit of the devil is at work. And uh, what the atheists don't realize is that there's a spiritual battle going on and that it's a battle between evil and God's goodness and righteousness. Now, the devil knows that this man is coming and he's up to no good from the devil's point of view, all right? And so the Lord has his servants and the devil has his. And it's time once again for a showdown between good and evil. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 26 says that the devil traps people and takes them captive to do his will. So he's got 42 young men, guardians of Bethel, born and bred right there. They got a lot on the line. They don't want to lose their livelihood. They don't want to lose what's going on there. And so... Uh, first main objection to this story by outsiders is the youthfulness of the so-called victims. All right? So let's deal with the youthfulness. A gross mistranslation is found in the King James Version. It's a total downright error. It says children. All right? So, so while the word occasionally can refer to an immature child, it's really about the immaturity, not the age of the child. Now, check this out. The ancient Hebrew word translated youth here means young men in a very broad sense. The term applied to Joseph when he was 39 years old, Genesis 41 and verse 12, to Absalom as an adult, 2 Samuel 14 and verse 21, and to Solomon when he was 20, 1 Kings 3, verse 7, and a group of 400 Amalekite warriors, 1 Samuel 30 and verse 17. The best sense of who these young youth were is the term juveniles, all right? They were young Rebels, And the word really has the feeling of insolent immaturity, right? They should be grown up. They're not, all right? So that's where I think maybe they got the word children. But it definitely, you are to picture young, insolent rebels are there. Now, you're going to tell me that it's not an organized mob. There's 42 of them. There's 42 of them. That just tells me they have organized Right? These aren't just random, first of all, they're not like the atheists would, would have you believe. They're not like a little trail of preschoolers crossing the street, holding on a rope, going to the park, all right? And when they just see a bald guy, they go, oh, there's a bald guy, you know, and then he curses on you as a bear comes and eats them all, you know? 
That's not the story, all right? That is really not the story. We've got a mob of Middle Eastern crazed men who are posturing in a threatening and defiant spirit uh, against the man of God. And so we'll take a look now at what happens with objection number two is the inequity of the offense as it compares to the consequences. In other words, it just seems like a trivial thing. You know, uh, they go up, go up, baldy, go up, go up, baldy. And he calls down a curse and a bear comes and mauls them all, all 42. Yes. <laughs> and, and let me explain why. This is not a good natured, teasing, joking kind of thing. It's wicked, taunting. And as one writer said, evil posturing. Elisha was going up to bless and to heal from God. The rebels come out to mock and oppose the living God. Now, the word mock there means the scornful disrespect and belittling of something or someone of great value. Now, the mocking takes two forms. Number one, uh, a verbal attack to ridicule the message. Uh, Go up, go up. They're mocking what just happened to Elijah. It's the same Hebrew construction as exactly what happened to Elijah and the whirlwind. So what they're really doing is saying, ascend up as you claim Elijah did, man. Uh, They're mocking, really, they don't even understand, but the great truth of the second coming and the rapture of the church. Aren't you supposed to to be raptured, man, with your master? Okay, Uh, if we put it in contemporary terms, it would be when the rapture happens, can I have your car? You know, have you ever heard of that? You guys paying attention? Good, all right. Uh, When the rapture happens, they say, can I have your car? You know, there's just all kinds of jokes and mocking about the rapture. And one day... There's going to be someone laughing, but uh, it's not going to be funny. Now, um, the mocking was directed to what God did. So here's what they're saying. Go on, get out of here, disappear, up and away with you, Mr. Rapture. Go get out of here. Follow in the footsteps of the whirlwind, your whirlwind. Yeah, a little bit different than what you imagined they were doing. Right, all 42 against one. 42 grown, angry men mocking in a threatening way against one man. Oh, it's starting to change how I feel about the story. Then they ridicule the guy. So I believe the term is baldy that they use. Baldy. Can you imagine? Never mess with a man with a shaved head. <laughs> now, Elijah, Elisha probably, most commentators say, took a Nazarite vow to begin his new ministry. It's his very first uh, time serving the Lord. So according to Numbers chapter 6, you would shave your head. So he shaved his head. Go up in the rapture, baldy. 
It's mock, they're mocking God's work, what God did in unbelief to that, and then mocking the sacredness of his consecration to the Lord. And then with 42 of them in that kind of uh, situation, one wrong word, can, it can get very dangerous, very fast and very ugly. Now, so they're mocking the work of God, belittling the power of God and ultimately the person of God. And they're standing in the way of what God wants to be doing through his prophet and they're ridiculing a man for his service to God. One commentator said, the hope of heaven, the plan of salvation, the fear of the Lord has no place in their hearts. Instead, with unbelieving hate and abuse, they want to square off with God and his representative. One guy put it this way. This is our town. We stand against you, your God, and your message. Get out, Baldy. Now, he feels the heat because he wouldn't have called on the name of the Lord if he didn't feel threatened, right? Otherwise, he just would have ignored it. So verse 24, he calls on the name of the Lord. Now, notice what Elisha doesn't do. Let's talk about what he doesn't do first. He doesn't complain to God about this is my very first day ministry. (laughs) All right, Uh, he doesn't do that. He doesn't run. He doesn't get his feelings hurt. I can't believe they call me Baldy. (laughs) I don't care about it. Uh, Doesn't compromise the message. Okay, listen, guys. Listen. Some some call uh, some worship two golden calves, and some call him Molech, and some call him Ashtara, and some call him Baal. All right. Okay. Cool down. You know, I can understand. You love the Lord. You just go through, you go your way through the calves. It's all right. Tolerance. I don't think so. That's not when I don't read any word there about that. This is classic Matthew 7, 20, uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. And I have that for you. Oh, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. What did he do? He didn't argue with them. Hey, listen, I'm on a mission from the Lord and I'm here and you're in the way and let's just... There's no arguing here because they, they, I like, listen, when people's hearts are hardened and hostile, and when they have no sense of the sacred, you run the risk of them trampling over the sacred truth with their dirty feet, and in their hostility, become abusive toward you. So this isn't an excuse. The Lord told his disciples this. This isn't an excuse to avoid sharing the gospel with difficult people. We keep trying. We're persistent with those who are challenging. We don't give up. We keep praying. And if God gives you an opportunity, we take it, even when there's a little bit of heat that we have to take. But there there are seasons and situations where you need to honor their desire not to hear, and uh, lest they make a mockery of the sacred and a target of you. So uh, that's how he handles it. 
He's not going to argue with them. Instead, he feels threatened. He feels like an argument would not work here. And so he, he, it says, verse 24, looks at them and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. First of all, the word curse. It does not mean anything profane or malicious. It's a very interesting word. It's kalal in the Hebrew. And interestingly, it means to take away something. Now, uh, Genesis chapter 8, verse 8, has that same word. When Noah sends out a dove to see if the waters have kalaled, if they have receded back. Now, so what is he doing? He's taking away the general blessing that covenanted people would have with God, which would include protection from wild beasts. In fact, in the Old Testament, he says, if you don't obey my covenant, the protection goes, the wild beasts come in. That's written in their law. So there's a lot going on here that a Jew who's watching will know exactly what's going on, that they're not uh, under God's covenant of protection. And so what he really is doing is saying, Lord, take away the grace, or actually a better way of putting it is how one writer described it. Quote, so Elisha, as a prophet, saw their hardened and rebellious condition, unresponsive to correction. So in the name of the Lord, by his authority, Elisha simply turned them over to the Lord and to their own devices, which had the effect of removing them from even the common protection of God. He probably said something like, may God deal with you according to what you deserve. This would demonstrate to the city and to people all around a vital truth. Without the Lord, there's no protection and that blasphemy of God's servants and his word in order to hinder God's message is serious business. Note that Elisha did not call out the bears. God did. All right, so now, last point, bearing the consequences. (laughs) Now, what was that for? (laughs) All right, it's getting late, so I better better continue on. All right, Uh, notice verse 24, they're mauled, they're not killed. There may have been some funerals in the town, but not necessarily. They're mauled. All right, and I think maybe that there's more grace there than you would know. Now you would think after that, Bethel would be having a massive revival. Maybe they would tear down the altar, get rid of the false priests and the golden calves, right? No, (laughs) no, no, they'll probably get bear repellent, you know? That's probably what they're doing. Perhaps a few of those rabble-rousers will be in heaven, because of the mauling they took and survived. Wouldn't that be nice in heaven? It's like, oh, everybody's going to say how you got there, you know, and somebody's going to say, hey, Second Kings chapter 2. <laughs> <laughs> I was one of them. No, a new body, so you won't see anything. But, you know, uh, li- listen, if it takes mauling to keep a soul from perishing, Mauling it is, a blessed mauling at that. Scars that we incur as Jesus was calling us are blessed reminders of his love and constant reminder to stay on the straight and narrow path. 
Mauling's not the worst thing that can happen to you. Especially if that mauling brings you to Christ and eternal life. Amen? So God is exonerated once again. They weren't kids. They were full-grown godless men. It wasn't a trivial thing at all. It was deliberate evil act opposing God's purposes and ultimately the Lord and threatening God's servant 42 to 1. Elisha turned them over to the Lord as a cry for help and they got what anyone who opposes God deserves and ultimately receives a world of hurt. And so the fact that they didn't die shows that God wants them to learn, return, and live. That is not evil. That is loving. All right? Now, let me close with Psalm 136, that we read a little bit of it. I'm going to read it really fast. His love endures forever, that psalm that repeats that refrain. But I want you to catch something about God's love. All right? Because you're going to hear the kindness, and you're going to hear the severity of God's love. So I'll just start reading through, and then the verses I want you to see, they'll come up on the screen, all right? Give thanks to the Lord, for he's good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him alone, who does great wonders, his love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens, his love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters, his love endures forever. Who made the great lights, the sun to govern the day, his love endures forever. The moon and the stars to govern the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. That's the first one, but I don't have that written here for you. His love endures forever and brought Israel out from among them. His love endures forever. Now down to 15. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea, his love endures forever. To him who led his people through the desert, his love endures forever. Who struck down great kings, his love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, his love endures forever. So you get the point. Note the kindness and the severity of God. The love of God will remove the threat to peace and remove the bad guy so that there can be peace. And that's the loving thing to do, especially when the bad guy resists the grace of God. God says, Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, As surely as I live, says the Lord, I take no delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that they should turn to me and live. And he says, turn to me. Why should you die? Turn and live, O house of Israel. That's God's heart. And tonight we see the kindness, the severity. And it all depends on our response, which one we receive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your kindness and your severity because that's who you are, Lord. And we, we need the kindness and we need the severity. We need you. We thank you for your great love and the teaching uh, of the word of God. 
We just open our hearts and ask you to continue the work down deep inside of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.